Welcome to Crosstalks, conversations that drive innovation. In this podcast, we featured well-known payments expert Hugo Cuevas-Moore. This series is based on his 2023 book, Sending Money, Forex, Remittances, Immigration, and the Fintech Revolution, which dives into the evolution of the cross-border financial services industry. Crosstalks is published by Crosstech, a conference and consultancy service company based in Miami, Florida. Each episode is 24 to 28 minutes long. Thank you for listening. Hi, let's continue in episode 7 with the short history of foreign exchange, part 2 of 3. We left with Nicholas Dick's reign being confronted with the need for the U.S. government to understand and control the large movements of funds that needed to be monitored. All these large movements were presumed to be coming from illicit activities. Even the family remittances sent by the growing mass of hidden and undocumented migrants. But that will be a story I will analyze later. The first time I heard Nicholas Dick's story was during my work with Lou Barron, a former Dick employee who hired me in 1992 to work in the company he had founded after leaving Dick in 1984, New York Foreign Exchange, NYFX. Together with Marvin Fried and other Dick employees, they founded NYFX to serve a customer base they knew from their work at Dick and to develop new services they wanted to commercialize. One was family remittances. I was hired to develop the Rapido Heroes brand in New York and New Jersey and the Latin American division of the company, besides Roger Freed, Marvin's son. LeBaron handed me the notes of a book he wanted to write about Nicholas Dick, a person he admired to some extent, but at the same time considered unethical and without principles. Dick's involvement in various business ventures, including bribery, secret payments to the CIA, helping foreign dignitaries transfer large sums of money out of their country's coffers, etc., were sordid affairs. He gave me copies of some chapters, which I still have. Lou Barron passed away in 2014, and his book project never came to light. We left the previous episode with Dick in 1983-1984, when he appeared on the Forbes Wealthiest Men list and the business impact of the emergence of the offshore financial centers, OFCs, in the Caribbean. In October 1984, the U.S. Department of Justice appointed a federal commission that became known as President Reagan's Commission on Organized Crime. An executive order established this 20-member commission, and Judge Irving Kaufman was appointed its chairman. The Commission to Study Organized Crime wanted to reveal a whole series of money movements, of money laundering cases, and banks' complicity in accepting large sums of cash from money brokers and individuals which the Commission believed they were closely linked to organized crime. Shortly after this appointment, uh, U.S. Attorney Jim Harmon called Nicholas Dick to appear 
as a witness before the commission in its first hearing, but Dick publicly refused to appear. Harmon was enraged and he told reporters, officially the commission will ask Mr. Dick to explain how more than a hundred million were laundered through his company and others in various criminal schemes. Of course, this public comment made Dick's closest clients extremely nervous. Finally, at hearing number four on November 29, 1984, the commission forced Dick to appear. He did just before a hooded Colombian witness testified about how he laundered drug funds through Dick. It may have been possible for Dick to deal with large secret funds in the past, but his association with drug money laundering was a straw that brought the camels back. Although the transcripts of the hearing and the commission's full report was not released until 1986 and published in 1987, the initial refusal to testify, the subpoena, the forced presentation, and the hearing caused serious damage to Dick's reputation and the fear of exposure of his large secretive client base. It is clear to me, and the statements made by Nicholas Dick support this, that he felt that his role as a provider of foreign exchange and payment services did not involve the notion of knowing the origin and use of funds by his clients. He defended his position, explaining that he was not a policeman and that it was the law enforcement agent's responsibility to be the police. The transcript of Nicholas Dick's hearing and question and answer session with Jim Harmon reveals Dick's mindset regarding the allegations. For him, the notion that a person providing a service, a restaurant owner, a hairdresser, a taxi driver, an airplane pilot, doesn't need to know the comings and goings of their clients, and that was an unfamiliar idea at the time. For him, that was police work. We can see how much that has changed. Now we are asked, not only in financial services, but in car sales, art sales, jewelry, real estate, to know who are we dealing with as clients and the origin of the funds. After Dick's prosecution by the authorities and other highly publicized operations, the existing paradigm changed handing over the responsibility of knowing their client to the financial institution. Dick's empire was developing larger and larger cracks. Gossip about Dick Pereira's potential collapse multiplied, and its account holders, especially in South America, where large amounts of funds were at stake, began to request immediate reimbursement of their funds. Customer demands and the fear of being implicated in ongoing investigations forced Dick and Company to file for Chapter 11 on December 6, 1984. The news came as a big surprise to everyone in the financial world. However, the company was able to manage discreetly. Dick Pereira Wall Street Inc. and Dick Pereira International Banking Corporation filed for bankruptcy. Still, Dick Pereira U.S. Inc., which operated the company's U.S. and Canadian retail offices, Dick National Bank in New York City, and two securities trading units did not file for bankruptcy. And Dick continued quietly operating 
determined to build up his empire again, despite the hundreds of customers that lost money with the bankruptcy of some of his companies. One year after the near collapse, on November 19, 1985, a 44-year-old homeless woman called a black lady by the press named Louis Lang shot and killed Nicholas Dick and his receptionist, Francis Lottering, at the company's Manhattan office under very strange circumstances. There are many theories as to why this woman murdered him. Still, none provide a true and widely accepted explanations of the reasons and motivations for the murder. Louis Lang was mentally unstable and she did not seem to have any compelling reasons to murder him. Many people, including Lou Baron, believed that the back lady was manipulated to kill Nicholas Dick. Perhaps some clients wanted to get rid of him or get revenge and found a way to manipulate Mrs. Lang, give her the gun, and convince her to kill him. There may be other dark motives involving CIA or government informants. Anyway, Ms. Lang went to prison, where she received many psychiatric treatments over time, similar to those she went through before the murder. Some of these treatments would have been associated with work that the CIA was doing, further fueling the theories behind the assassination. She has refused, or has been unable, to explain what drove her to commit this crime. She'll probably die in jail without being able to tell the truth. Let's continue with the story of the company. After his father's death, his son, Leslie Dick, who had served as president and CEO of Dick Pereira US, filed for creditor protection under Chapter 11 of the US Bankruptcy Code to seek to restructure and rescue what was left of the company. In the following year, the foreign commerce bank in Zurich, Switzerland, was sold to a Singaporean investment group for $48 million, and Martin Properties Limited, an Australian company, purchased 75% of the shares of Dick and Company for more than $10 million. The remaining 25% was held in escrow for management and employees, while creditors received only 50 cents for every dollar that was owed to them. Many creditors never appeared to claim their money. In his Chapter 11 filing, Dick and Company listed assets of $62 million, but liabilities for $95 million. Arkady Coleman, the former executive vice president of Dick Canada, was appointed the president and chief executive officer of the new entity, while Leslie Dick resigned. Dick National Bank changed his name to American National Bank on June 1985, but despite the name change, most South American depositors withdrew their money, and the bank closed in 1982 after going through bankruptcy proceedings. In 1990, Thomas Cook, whose story I will tell in the next episode, bought Dick's 110 stores in the U.S. and also bought the Travels Check business which became part of the growing development of this British travel company. The precious metal subsidiary became Dick International Goldline in 
Two, it was sold to a group of investors, which kept the name Goldline until today. Many employees at Dick and Company, office cashiers, account representatives, country representatives, led the firm after the commission hearings, the bankruptcies, and the murder of Nicholas Dick, and started their own small foreign exchange businesses. Dick's collapse left many customers needing foreign exchange services, which encouraged some employees in many cities where Dick had branches to establish their own companies and serve the need in the market. Some employees, uh, migrant themselves, saw the opportunity and began offering money transfers using the underlying foreign exchange operational knowledge they have acquired in Dick. Due to the great wave of immigration that began in the 70s, more immigrants demanded the services that these individuals experienced in operating foreign exchange could provide. Dick Pereira as a company handled remittances as part of their operation. First from the US to Europe, with families helping their relatives in war-term Europe, then Filipino, Vietnamese, and also early Latin American migrants. It is impossible to tell Nicholas Dick's story without examining the dark side of the operations in which he was involved. First to support CIA covered operations internationally, and then providing services to American companies, to traders, brokers, and politicians. CTRs, the Currency Transactions Reports, and the SARS, or Suspicious Activity Reports, introduced in 1996, are based on the lessons U.S. regulators learned in dealing with these notorious characters' operations. The mafioso stories involving clandestine dealings and international movement of underworld money will most likely be part of a series that we can watch in a movie or in a Netflix series, especially after the 2022 release of the book Mr. Clean, Cash, Drugs and the CIA, The True Story of a Master Money Launderer by a former Dick employee, Bruce Aitken. It was perhaps the book that Lou Barron wanted to write himself. The U.S. government's Cold War operation used Dick's knowledge and connections to move large sums of money in and out of countries. When the tide changed, new politicians came to power and regulators were heard, Dick was then exposed. Dick's connections with former agencies of the U.S. OSS as well as individuals in other countries, influential and in power, helped him in his later life as an independent entrepreneur. Dick's beginnings may have been financed or supported by the U.S. government. Dick felt entitled to follow his own rules about international currency management by governments, politicians, wealthy magnates, and also corporations. An example is his involvement in the Lockheed bribery scandals, that were revealed after his death, which encompassed a series of bribes and contributions made by the U.S. company Lockheed from the late 1950s to the 1970s in negotiating the sale of aircraft to many countries. It was revealed, for example, that $8 million, about $50 million in 23 U.S. dollars, 
was moved to Dick's offices in Hong Kong, where a Spanish-born priest representing Lockheed took the cash and carried to Japan to bribe Japanese officials. Many of these officials were brought to justice on corruption charges later on. And this is just one of the stories that have surfaced, as many politicians used his services to hide and move money. The Panama Papers and other contemporary scandals are very small compared to the operations that Dick managed in his time. But Dick became involved in the rivalries of American politicians, some supporting him and seeking to protect him, but some wanted to destroy what they perceived as detrimental to the U.S. economy, a lawless financial empire that had to be brought down. Employees remember him complaining about the hypocrisy of the U.S. government. It would not be the first time, nor the last, that a protected son of the U.S. government falls from grace. It should be noted that Nicholas Dick's son, Leslie Dick, has always stood by his father's innocence. In an article after his death, he commented, The damage we have suffered of the malice in that report, referring to the President Reagan's Commission on Organized Crime, largely caused the downfall of a great firm and hurt a very good man, my dad. Dick's story created a perception that U.S. regulations and their enforcement, especially concerning the international movement of money, were not stopping organized crime, corruption, tax evasion, and, of course, the cover-up of drug proceeds. Operation Greenback, a South Florida money laundering investigation conducted in the 80s to understand the large movements of cash effectuated by brokers, foreign exchange firms, and banks, is directly related to the realization of the U.S. government that an underground cash economy was out of control. Mike McDonald, a longtime industry consultant, participating in the operation as a special agent within the Criminal Investigation Division of the IRS. In an interview in the year 2000 with uh, PBS, he mentions that all U.S. banks, not just those located in South Florida were breaking the law, the BSA, between 1970 and 1980 by not reporting the CTRs, the reports of operations above $10,000. But because of the lack of government communication and outreach, which AML expert Charles Intriago criticized in 1991 before Congress, almost no one complied with these reports, and there was minimal follow-up of non-compliance, and there was minimal follow-up of non-compliance. Mike states in the interview what the banks were saying in 1980. If I've got to file this report called a CTR, then you better make sure every bank has to file that. If every bank has to do that, that's okay. Then there's no economic advantage one way or the other, to go to one bank or the other. Then we're operating on a level playing field. Until we are operating on a level playing field, we have a problem with this. This is a good moment in the history of foreign exchange to point out that there's a big difference between the foreign exchange business per se 
and a remittance business regarding the customers they served. When remittance volumes grew at the end of the 80s and in the 90s, foreign exchange companies faced a dilemma. Keep on serving wealthier clients and businesses with broad economic resources or offering their services to a target group that was poor and underserved, migrant families, either at its origin or at its destination. I must emphasize that wealthy clients, knowledgeable about banks and their services, were using foreign exchange companies to move their money international for many reasons. This included better rates, faster payments, confidentiality, traceability of the transaction, personal security, distrust of the regulated system, and options that might involve the desire to avoid regulatory controls in one place or another, and also taxes or regulatory restrictions. At the end of the 80s and 90s, most foreign exchange companies and banks had to adjust their compliance views, digging deeper into clients' intentions and needs, and deciding to be, or not to be, willfully blind as to the origin or purpose of their clients' money. In the case of wealthy clients in developing countries, moving money internationally involved getting hands in hard currency, and they needed the networks established by foreign exchange companies and bank accounts in major financial centers, the US, Canada, Europe, Hong Kong, Singapore, etc. Effect in Latin America, as an example, did two things. Exchange US dollars in cash into local currency and sell these dollars domestically in exchange for local currency to travelers or clients that needed US bills. But when a client needed to receive the dollars abroad, the U.S., for example, U.S.-based funds was, were needed to supply that need. The result was that the U.S. authorities called, in the case of Colombia, that was analyzed in detail by U.S. authorities, the Black Market Peso Exchange, or BMPE. In a 2013 document written by Evan Waits and Clay Porter, both working for the U.S. Department of Justice at the time, they explain how this all came about. I will use some quotes from the writing by Welts and Porter. The BMPE can be traced back to the coffee boom in Colombia in the 1950s. During that time, the sale of Colombian coffee generated large amounts of international profits for Colombia. However, this influx of foreign exchange devalued the Colombian peso and caused instability in the Colombian economy. This is the same case in other countries that experience such booms, Venezuela with oil, for example. As a result, the country prohibited its citizens from holding foreign currency, both within Colombia and abroad. As part of this initiative, the Colombian government also instituted very high tariffs on foreign goods or banned the import of certain goods altogether in an effort to strengthen the Colombian peso by encouraging more goods to be produced in the country and keeping the country's wealth within its borders. But these prohibitions fueled the need for peso brokers who handled the money needs of Colombians outside the country's borders, as Waits and Porter explain. 
the peso broker had numerous sources of U.S. currency that he could sell to Colombians who needed to purchase goods in the United States or who needed money out, sent outside of Colombia. Colombian individuals wanting investments in the U.S. as a hedge against volatile Colombian financial system or to finance their children's education abroad or they could have been looking to import legitimate items for the resale as part of their business. For U.S. authorities, the problem began when the source of this U.S. currency changed. Drug traffickers enticed these peso brokers to use the dollars they were generating in the U.S. and Europe and use their expertise to compensate for the funds inside and outside of the country. When the sale of cocaine in the United States skyrocketed, it produced a large source of cash that needed to be laundered. Peso brokers now had an almost unlimited supply of U.S. dollars that they could offer to Colombians or other individuals in South, Central America, Africa, Asia, etc. What many analysts failed to understand at that time is that the large wave of migrants that were arriving in the U.S. and Europe at the same time were sending money home. And that was also a source of these dollars. Some foreign exchange companies decided to start paying remittances as a safer source of U.S. dollars. But law enforcement agents failed to understand the remittance component. They didn't believe in the number of migrants sending home funds and this was disastrous, not only for the companies in developing countries, but also for the ethnic remittance businesses that began appearing in every U.S. city and later in Europe that were serving these remittance centers. In the 80s, the IRS and the U.S. government agencies found that the cash surplus in some parts of the United States, like South Florida, was colossal. While some states were cash negative, the surplus of cash in South Florida at the beginning of the 80s was above $5 billion. And there was only one valid reason for them, laundering money proceeds from drug trafficking. According to the government, Operation Greenback dismantled a network of 16 organizations that laundered $2.5 billion. That operation resulted in 164 arrests, 211 indictments, 63 convictions, and more than $38 million in seized currency and about $7 million in seized property. In that operation, Isaac Catan and Benogitis, two well-known businessmen from Cali, Colombia, that were involved in the foreign exchange business, were prosecuted and convicted as part of Operation Ringback for the large sums of money that they deposited in banks in Miami. The two cases are very similar as they both made large cash deposits in banks without properly filing the CTRs. My father was also implicated in Operation Greenback. I know this operation well, not at the time when it happened as I was just a college student, but much later on, as my old man never discussed it with me. If you continue listening to this podcast in another episode, I will tell his story. And in a way, my story too. But for the U.S. government, every dollar was coming only from drug proceeds, including the family remittances. 
In the case of Brazil, for example, U.S. authorities never persecuted the Brazilian foreign exchange companies and remittances business in the U.S. While the facts in Brazil, the doleiros, were very busy using remittances as the source of this hard currency, besides other sources. I will discuss the parallel market in Brazil and the famous doleiros in a later episode, when I explain the relationship between the gray market of the real, which I call GMRE, and remittances, based on a 2012 paper I did on the matter. So all these circumstances led to the furnishing companies around the world, starting with the U.S., to become under siege by law enforcement agents and regulatory agencies to make sure that they were complying with the money laundering rules and later on the terrorist financing regulations that were being implemented. This is all for episode 7 of the short story of foreign exchange. I will wait for you in episode 8 to finish this three-part mini-series on foreign exchange. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Crosstucks, Conversations That Drive Innovation. The book Sending Money is available on Amazon. For comments, questions, and feedback, use our social media channels, LinkedIn, Facebook, and YouTube. See you soon.